We're in Isaiah. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, it's Isaiah chapters 15 and 16 for us today. Why are we in Isaiah? Well, what we do is work through books of the Bible. My job is to proclaim what the Scripture says, not any of my own ideas. And the best way we've found to do that is to just move through books of the Bible. And so this late spring and early summer, we've been in the book of Isaiah, just taking it one passage at a time, working our way through. And so often we come upon passages on special Sundays like this, and if uh, we have visitors, they might scratch their heads a little bit and think, well, that was an odd passage for Matt to have selected for this special Sunday. Well, I didn't really select it. I trusted in the Lord as we just moved through his word that it is all profitable all the time. And I think that we'll find that now. The book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy in God's word, and it was written some 700 years before Jesus was even born. And so you might be wondering, is this going to have any relevance for me whatsoever now here in modern-day America trying to be a Christian? Well, I would argue that this is more relevant to you than most of the content you've taken in this week. Just think back over your last week, all the content you took in. If you can even begin to remember what all content you took in. Think of the TV, think of the news, think of whatever on your, the apps on your phone. Maybe some of you listen to podcasts, might be readers, YouTube, social media. Just think of all you've been taking in. I can pretty well guarantee you that this will actually have more relevance to your life than a lot of that stuff. And it'll definitely have more powerful, helpful soul nutrients than most of that stuff. So this is for us. Studying a book like this helps us get to know God. That's what you're designed for, is to know and trust God. That's the whole core reason that you exist, is to know and trust and love and worship God. So we read a book like this, we come to know him better, and then that informs our whole vision of reality and the way reality works and gets us lined up with what's true. And more importantly than any of that, It points us toward Jesus Christ, who is the centerpiece of human history, the Savior, the Lord, and as we'll see in this text, the King that we've all longed for, that all human beings long for. So our passage concerns an ancient civilization called Moab. Some of you who've been here consistently will remember Moab from our time in Genesis. Remember where the Moabites came from? Anybody remember? Remember that somewhat bizarre story of Lot and his daughters? His daughters in a moment of kind of insane desperation, afraid that they wouldn't be able to have children. They got their father, Lot, drunk so that he would sleep with them and they could be, become pregnant and have kids. I'm not going back into all that right now, but you remember that? One of those kids was the father of the Moabites. And so here we are generations later. They're a whole nation now. And they've had kind of a, uh, like a relationship you might have with a troubled cousin sort of relationship with Israel for all these generations. And here Isaiah has been given an oracle or a, a heavy message to give God's people concerning Moab. God wants them to know what's about to happen to Moab. Because this is a lengthier passage than normal and I have less time with you than normal, since we're going to have the Lord's Supper in a few moments, I'm really going to read a lot of this with minimal comment, and then there's one verse I really want you to to see, especially. So let's just begin. Our first heading would just be that destruction is coming to Moab. 
Isaiah chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. An oracle concerning Moab. There's going to be a lot of historical place names in here, and I'm going to do my best to pronunciate them correctly, or to pronounce them even. This is going to go great. Don't be distracted if you don't know what all these places are. Uh, It's not that important that you understand all the history of each of these place names. You'll get the big idea. Okay, because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. So their major cities were going to fall instantly overnight. Their gods would fail them, as we see in verse 2. He, the Moabite, has gone up into the temple and to Dibon, to the high places, to weep over Nebo and over Madiba. Moab wails. On every head is baldness. Every Every beard is shorn. The whole nation would descend into panic as we get into verse 3. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops and in the squares everyone wails and melts in tears. Their armies would fail them as we get into verse 4. Heshbon and Eliela cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. This is, this is terrible what is coming upon Moab soon. And God's prophet Isaiah and God himself are not dispassionate about it. They are concerned. They're heartbroken over what's about to happen as we get into verse 5. It says, my heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath-Shelishiah. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. On the road to Horonaim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. In other words, all that was vibrant about Moab was going to become desolate. So we read on, we see that the people would be, all their stuff that they had accumulated through a relatively prosperous era of their country, they would have to gather as much as they could and carry it with them as they fled. Verse 7, Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglaim. Her wailing reaches to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood, for I will bring upon Dibon even more, a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. So what God was about to do, you you guys who are visiting with us, there's a lot of history we've been covering over the weeks leading into this passage that I can't fully outline right now, but basically God was going to raise up a powerful nation, the nation of Assyria, to conquer Judah, to discipline Judah. Judah, discipline God's people for rebelling against him. But it wasn't just going to affect Judah, it was going to affect all the surrounding nations. And God wants his people to understand the full scope of what's happening, so they'll trust him, and so they won't be just totally undone by what's taking place. And so it was going to affect Moab as well. And then next we see that Moab would turn toward Judah. And now we're getting into the section that I really want us to focus on, and we're getting close to the verse that I really want to focus on. Now we're into chapter 16, verse 1. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah by way of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. In other words, give tribute to the people of Judah. They're going to turn to Judah for protection and help. 
Verse 2, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. And then verse 3 begins to kind of outline what their plea toward Judah would be when this disaster comes. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then, and here we are at verse 5. So if I've lost you, tune back in here at verse 5. This is the verse I think that we really need to focus on this morning. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness In the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Now, we know from our study of Isaiah that often God's people, and even now some of the surrounding nations, are looking forward to this promised king. God has promised that a king would come, and this king would rule perfectly. And here again, we get a glimpse of what this king would be like. Now, we know with the advantage of hindsight all these years later that Jesus Christ is this promised king, this Messiah of the Jewish people that they were waiting for all along. We know him now. He is Jesus Christ, and here we get another glimpse of his character, specifically four facets that I want to point out to you, and this is what I really, from this word, want to give you this morning, are these four facets of King Jesus, the king that we've all been longing for throughout all of human history. Love, faithfulness, justice, righteousness. Those are the four facets that are pertinent here in this passage and to us this morning. First, there in verse 5, it says that a throne will be established in steadfast love. The other kings were establishing their thrones and expanding their power through violence, through brutal demonstration of their superior might. But that's not how Jesus established his throne. Jesus established his throne in steadfast love. Now, that's an Old Testament word that's translated steadfast love, and it means his covenant love. It's his, his permanent, determined love that he pours out on his people. These other kings would lay waste to the whole landscape of their enemies, but Jesus laid down his own life so that his enemies could become grafted into his people. The other kings would fill the waters with blood. King Jesus poured out his own blood for his people. The other kings would require the lives of their enemies and of their own soldiers in expanding their thrones. Jesus laid down his own life. There is no other king like King Jesus. Who Think about the people that love you. So just get in your mind just all the people that love you. You've got a lot of people that love you, I guarantee, every one of you. Even those of you that feel like, well, I'm not lovable. Maybe you're not lovable, I don't know. But you'd still have people that love you. Now, from within that group, who among them loves you enough that they would die for you? Like, that narrows the selection a little bit. Would your parents die for you? there's pretty high likelihood that a parent would die for their children. Okay, what about your favorite teacher? Maybe. We've seen teachers do some heroic things. 
You know, this shooting in Texas is fresh on our minds. It's, it's actually quite dangerous in the schools, or it, it seems that way. And we've seen teachers do courageous things. So that, I think that it, there is the possibility there. What about your boss? Think about the leaders God has put in your life. Would your boss die for you? That gets a little less likely for a lot of us. Think about our, our governmental leaders. Would they die for you, do you think? Think about the presidents that we've had. And I'm not going to, we're not going to cause any trouble here, but do you think that they would lay their life down for you? I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't presume to say if they would or wouldn't. I think these Moabites are seeing that they are being terrorized by the kings in the land around them, and they are longing for a king that would love them. And that is a good longing. It's a longing that's in the heart of every human being, and it's there for a reason. The fact that you desire a good leader who will genuinely, selflessly, fully, unwaveringly love you is a good desire that's put there by God himself, and it's satisfied and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's King Jesus. He is the king that established his throne in steadfast love. He loves you. He loves you more than you can, you can really even wrap your mind around. He loves you enough that he died for you. More than just loving you, you can trust him, which leads us to the second facet. The first one is love. The second one is faithfulness. It says, a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness this king that is pointing to. Faithfulness just means that this king would speak truthfully and act truthfully. He would be 100% trustworthy, and he would follow through 100% on everything that he said. Now, how many leaders do we have that are like that? The other kings might manipulate their people. They might deceive their people. They might use a lot of spin and half-truths and exaggerations and withholding certain facts to try to maintain their power and control. King Jesus is not like that. Jesus speaks the truth. He acts truly. In fact, the Bible says he is the embodiment of truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I can say with 100% that you will never regret building your life on the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't spin. You don't have to try to read between the lines. You don't have to try to interpret his spin. You don't need an app on your phone that gives you Jesus' words from three different perspectives so you can figure out what's true. I have an app on my phone. I have a couple of news apps on my phone, and one of them, I think it's called All Sides or something like that. And for each story, it gives you a blurb from a left-biased news source, a blurb from a right-biased news source, and then as best they can, a blurb from a center-biased news source. And so the idea is you read these, you know they're biased, and then you try to figure out what's true. Like, you don't have to do that with Jesus. It's just straight arrow right to the bullseye of truth. Jesus' word is true. That's why it's held up so long. 100%, you will never regret building your life on the truth of God's word given to us. How many times have you regretted something that you once believed? I think we've all believe somebody that told us something or taught us something and then later found out, well, that wasn't right, that wasn't true, and regretted it. 
I was trying to think of an example, and I, the, the most bizarre memory came to me, and I'm going to share it as an example, and you're going to think it's the stupidest example, but I had completely forgotten about this incident when I was in elementary school. And there were, we were sitting around the lunch table, and there was one kid sitting there who was known to be a little bit of a bully. He's pretty rough around the edges, and he could be pretty cruel. And beside him was a kid that was known to be just a really nice guy. And it was the kind of situation where you could tell the nice kid was trying to be a good friend to the bully kid. And so the bully kid said, hey, I want to show you a trick to the nice kid. He said, let me hold your arm. Hold your arm up and just let me kind of hold it. So the nice kid was like, okay, and he held his arm up. He said, just let it be limp. Like, just don't, don't try to, like, tense your muscles at all. Just let it be limp. And so it was all wiggly in the bully kid's hands, and he was just sort of wiggling it around. And he's like, doesn't that feel weird? And the nice kid was like, I guess. And then all of a sudden, the bully kid smacked the nice kid right in the face with his own hand. And then he laughed. The bully kid laughed. He thought it was the most hilarious thing. And I, I watched all that happen. I remember thinking, I, one thing I know is I will never trust that kid ever. And that nice kid probably learned the same lesson. All that to say, Jesus doesn't do that kind of thing. When we trust Jesus, he has an unblemished track record all these generations of it holding up, of him not turning on you, of it not turning out to be false. How many books did you, have you read that you thought, well, that's brilliant. I'm going to incorporate that principle into my life only years later to look back and realize that was actually kind of stupid. How many times have the textbooks that you guys who just graduated had new editions come out because they had to revise them? Because even under the best intentions, we get things wrong. Jesus doesn't get things wrong. That's why there aren't revisions and editions of God's word. It's solid. He says that his word is like a rock. If you build your life on this rock, it's stable as opposed to the shifting sands of everybody else's advice and philosophies and ideas. We desire a leader who loves us steadfastly and and whom we can trust, and that desire is good. God built that desire into us, and it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the good and perfect king. But that's just two of the facets highlighted here. There's a third one, and that is justice. It says, he judges and seeks justice. Justice just means he makes things right. How does Jesus make things right as king? Well, he does it in sort of two phases. Phase one was the cross. Phase two will be when he returns. In phase one, the king laid down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for the rebellion and sins of all humankind who would receive that payment. Phase two, when he returns... All those who receive that pardon will be welcomed into eternity with him, and all those who rejected it will be punished. You know, I have a tendency, a long-standing tendency, to not return my library books on time. I think of it as my built-in way of contributing to the library system, donating through those library funds to the library system. Well, during COVID, the the Mint Hill Public Library suspended any fees for a period of time. Now, I absolutely had overdue library books during the time of COVID. Some of them became quite overdue because I couldn't figure out how to return them. They wouldn't let you return them through the book drop, and I don't know, I just couldn't figure it out. So there's a likelihood I probably had $20, $25 in library fees, which is pretty astronomical in library fee scale. 
but they were sent out a notice. Library fees will be forgiven for this time period. If you'll come and turn in your books during this time period, we will absorb the fact that we didn't have that book for longer than we were supposed to, and you will be forgiven that fee. But that time period had an end date. If you didn't return your library book by that end date, then you would assume responsibility for all of your fees. That's kind of the way Jesus' justice works. He sends out the word. Behold, the king has made a way to pardon all the rebels. He himself has absorbed the penalty for all of those who have rebelled against his rightful lordship. And for this time period of human history, all those who will come to him, confess their sins and turn from them and receive his forgiveness, will be granted full pardon, full citizenship in his kingdom, full rights as citizens under his lordship. And that time continues to extend today. That opportunity is still available. But he's also promised that he's going to return, and at that time, that window will close. He's going to instate his kingdom once and for all, finally. And all those who've rejected that opportunity at pardon will lose the opportunity. And in that way, justice will have been served. And we've seen a lot of horrible injustice. Just this week, we've seen horrible injustice. We know that all wrongs will be made right in the end. And it'll be perfect. There's things we can't understand how it could ever be made right. But in the end, his perfect justice will prevail. And we will be in awe. We desire a leader, a king who loves us steadfastly, that we can trust, and who deals out perfect justice. And those desires are innate in us because they're designed to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The final facet is righteousness. It says he is swift to do righteousness. If justice is making things right, righteousness is doing right things. Jesus does the right thing every time. There's no skeletons in Jesus' closet, and there are no scandals waiting to burst forth. We have seen in the Christian world in particular leaders that we thought we could trust turn out to be untrustworthy and scandals come out that have been just devastating. Do you know in, our, in your bulletin, I don't know if you read it. I hope you do because I take great care in picking out the quote on the front of the beginning of the bulletin. Do you even notice that there's a quote there? I spend way too much time finding a good quote for the bulletin. But have you noticed if you do read those that it's rarely a living person? It's almost always a person who has been dead for a little while. The reason I rarely quote a living author or pastor or theologian or leader is because I'm afraid I'll quote him this week, and then by next week some scandal will have come out, and it'll turn out that they were a fraud because I don't know those people. I feel like it's a little safer if they've been dead for a couple of decades at least. You know, we had a prominent Christian leader come and speak at our leadership conference denominationally a couple years back, and he was just widely respected, and then it turned out he was up to all kinds of evil behind the scenes. It just reminds me of how we long for a leader that we don't have to worry about that with that we can trust fully, and who always does right. Now, human leaders are going to let us down in many ways, some of them just unintentional because human leaders are flawed, but Jesus Christ doesn't. He always does what's right. The emphasis here 
isn't even on the rightness of it. It's the swiftness. He's swift to do righteousness. He does the right thing quickly. He doesn't have to wait for public pressure, opinion polls, arm twisting. He loves to do the right thing. That's his character. It's who he is. So our desire for a leader that will love us and that we can trust and who will do righteousness and justice is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we get to be citizens in his kingdom. We get to submit to him and acclimate to this new culture in his kingdom. And it's in stark contrast to the arrogant nations of the world. And so let's finish our passage, and then we'll pivot to the Lord's Supper. Our passage goes on to focus on Moab's just pride and arrogance. They're, they're going to turn toward Judah wanting help, but deep down they are really actually very proud and arrogant people. And so it's not going to work out. In verse 6, it says, We have heard the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth, for the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Ileela. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased, and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyard, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Haraseth. So this proud and arrogant nation in their rebellion against the one true king would falter and fall. All that's left for us in this passage is a bit of an epilogue. Verse 12 And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. When the people of Moab go to their false gods looking for salvation, they won't find any there. Verse 13 and 14, our final two verses, show that this was a long time coming, not the first time it's been communicated, but now it's imminent. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. In spite of all his great multitude and those who remain, will be very few and feeble. And that is the fate of Moab. And that's our passage for this morning.